Well, as I warned you in my column this week, maybe warned is not a great word to use, but as I warned you in my column this week, we're going to start a series today in the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to call it Journey to the Throne. It's really the journey, if you will, of the nation to having a king, and then the journey of both Saul and David to be those kings and flowing from there forward. So it really tells us about the nation's journey to the throne, but we can learn a lot of things from it that can show us about our journey to God's throne. And so we, the subtitle is Living Lessons from 1 Samuel. And you know, one of the things I, I love about Old Testament history, about history in general, but Old Testament history in particular, is that we get to see the ways of God illustrated over and over again as he exercises or, or implements them, executes them in human history. So as we get to walk through the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to be able to see the nature and the character and the priorities and the plan and the power and all those kinds of issues, God, how they impact human history, change lives, guide nations, change the direction of the world. And from those, we can learn lots of things. But, but let's start with a little who am I kind of question, all right? So you listen and see if you can guess who I'm talking about. And So who was the first person in the Old Testament to ever refer to God as Lord Almighty? Or the phrase also could be the Lord of hosts, which became very common. Same person. This is the only person, narrows it down a little bit here, it's the only woman in the Old Testament that I know of, and, and, and this has been backed up by some others, the only woman in the Old Testament who actually made a vow to God and then kept it. This is a woman. Who am I? This is a woman. Hold on, John, all right? You probably read the chapter already. This is also a woman who really exercised more faithfulness, more piousness in her barrenness, than even did the mother of the nation, Sarah. This is a woman who has among, if not the longest prayer in the Scriptures offered by a woman. Hannah. There we go. And I was out of my who am I clues anyway, so that was the perfect time for the answer. Remind me to pay you later, Jane, as we go along. Hannah... This woman, Hannah, whose name means gracious woman, she is really the focus of our text today. After these, chapter 1 and the first 11 verses of chapter 2, she kind of disappears off the scene. But in these moments, she plays a vital role. She is, in many ways, one of the great women of faith in the Old Testament. But she's probably one who is greatly underappreciated. But we can learn a lot of things from her. So we're going to jump into the book of 1 Samuel today, looking to learn about how God works His ways in human history, and with that, what it can communicate to us. But I think it's important for us to see the forest before we start looking at the trees. So let me give you a couple of the big things that happen in the book of 1 Samuel that really kind of fits in in showing us the overarching work of God in his redemptive history. One of the things that 1 Samuel is going to do for us 
is show us how the people of God got from judgeship to kingship. Now, if you know, coming out of coming out of Egypt, settling into the promised land, God's mode for leading the people was that he was their king, and from time to time he would raise up judges, as they were known, to guide the people as his gift to them in moments of crisis, as God was disciplining them or whatever else was going on in the, in the thing. We get later into the books, and we have King David and Solomon. All Well, how do we get there? And the book of 1 Samuel is going to show us how we got from judgeship to kingship. It's not all pretty, but that's what happens. The book of 1 Samuel is also going to tell us why the Davidic kingship, or dynasty, if you will, is the legitimate one in the eyes of God. I mean, later on, God's going to make his gift of a Messiah that's going to come through the line of David. Well, why? And who is David? And why isn't Saul or his offspring the one? Because they were the first. Well, how did that all happen? And the book of 1 Samuel is going to tell us how that all comes to happen. The book of 1 Samuel is also going to tell us how Jerusalem became the capital of the nation and also the seat where God's temple would be built, which becomes a, a major factor throughout all, really all the rest of, of Israel's history, even up to this day, right? When the book of 1 Samuel starts, the center place of worship is in Shiloh. They're still using the tabernacle. They've put some structures with it, but they're still basically using the tent of meeting that Moses had built at God's command way back in the book of Exodus. And here they are, Worshiping still in Shiloh, but it's going to transition to Jerusalem. One last thing that happens. God made a promise. God issued a prophecy through Moses back in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He said, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you for the people. The people don't want to hear directly from me, so it's going to come a time in the future, I'm going to raise up a prophet who's going to be just like you to guide the people. Samuel is that prophet. Later, Jesus will also kind of fulfill that role, but he's much more than that. But in this role, Samuel literally becomes the voice of God through his entire life to the people. He, the best guess we have, for some of you who know the story, Samuel was taken up to Eli at the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, in Shiloh when he's about four years old. And he spends the rest of his years serving before the Lord until old age. And he is literally the guide, the second Moses to the people. All right, let's read the text together. I'd love for you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel. Our, our text today starts on, in our pew Bible on page 226. What I want to do is I want to read through the text, and I'll make some comments as we go, kind of filling in some pieces and that kind of thing. We're going to read all the way through verse 11 of chapter 2. And then I'll come back and try to draw out some living insights from us, some living lessons for us to understand and apply and build our lives around. Now, there was a, there's a few big terms in here, and um, let me put it this way, some unusual words. So if you'd pronounce them differently than me, you're probably correct, but I'm the one up here reading, so this is the way we're going to go, <laughs> all right? All right. 
Now, there was a man from Ramathon, Zophim, in the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. Now, he had two wives, the first named Hannah, so she was probably the first wife that he had, and the second was named Peninnah. Now, Peninnah had children, but Hannah was childless. And as you know, being childless as a woman in the Old Testament times, these times, was really a sign that you were out of God's favor. It was a a curse, if you will. Barrenness was seen as being a form of God's judgment on you. Now this man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Eli comes out of of, of an earlier period of time. He is the the lead priest, the high priest, if you will. He's too old to really kind of officiate anymore in the day-to-day operations of the tabernacle, so his two sons have taken over. And this pious man, Elkanah, goes up every year. Some people skipped it, it was too far to go, too costly. Every single year he goes up to worship. He's, He's a righteous man. Now, whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife, Peninnah, and to each of her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her, even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Notice that said the Lord had kept her from conceiving. The, usually what happened was, you know, if, if Elkanah and his family had, you know, say they were... his. Penn and I had three kids, you know, and then it was him and, and Hannah, so there's six. Then he would give four portions, if you will, to Penn and I. She would give some off to her kids, and then he and Hannah would each have some. But he kind of counted Hannah as twice, if you will. But her rival, verse 6, would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. So you kind of get the imagery. She's looking over and is that all you got? Look how much I got. How much and just really kind of rubbing it in. And she's taking that which is a, is a heartache to Hannah, and she's using it to inflict pain on her. Whenever she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way every year. And Hannah wept, and she wouldn't eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah asked. I think he already knew the answer to that question. <laughs> why won't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? I don't know if he really gets it. And the ten, ten sons imagery here is probably related back to the, the, the ten sons, if you will, that came to, to Jacob through other women before Rachel and that kind of thing. But So connecting all of that together, he just doesn't get it. But Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. Still the impression is she didn't participate. But when she sat there through the meal, when she gets done, Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's tabernacle. To sit was a position of authority. Where he's sitting makes him the supreme authority. And so deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of hosts, or Lord Almighty. First time this is ever used in the Scriptures. This name comes out of of the the mouth of Hannah. If you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me, and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, 
and his hair will never be cut. That's a Nazarite vow. Otherwise, he'll be set aside to God in a very special way. So she makes a vow to God. And while she was praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her lips. So he's sitting on a stool by the, by the tabernacle, by the thing. He's you know, in his position of authority. He's looking out, and, and she looks just to be kind of babbling without really saying anything. So Hannah was speaking to herself. Although her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. And Eli thought she was drunk. And he scolded her. He says, how long are you going to be a drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, 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 my Lord. You notice that also happened on the day of Pentecost, right? Some folks say, well, these guys, they're just all loaded. You know, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. They're already loaded. You know, kind of idea. Same thing. She responds, verse 15, no, my Lord. Hannah replied, I'm a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Notice that even in the midst of her pain, she reached out to God. We'll get back to that in a minute. Eli responded, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant the petition you've requested from him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer appeared downcast. Now, just a side note, because this isn't one of my points this morning, but you see the tremendous impact of prayer. Her circumstance isn't changed yet, but she is, simply because she has poured her heart out to God in prayer. That one's free, all right? Now, the next morning, Elkanah and Hannah got up early to bow and to worship the Lord, and afterwards they returned home to Ramah. Then Elkanah was intimate with his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. I'm going to come back to that term. And after some time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel because she said, I requested him from the Lord. The name Samuel means asked for from God, requested from God. The, word, the letters E-L there on the end stand for God. And so Samu means to ask from God. This is the one who's asked for from God. When Elkanah and all her household went up to make the annual sacrifice and his vow offering to the Lord, Hannah did not go up. And she explained to her husband, after the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and to stay there permanently. Weaning usually happened around the age of three or four, somewhere right in there. And her husband, Elkanah, replied, do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. Elkanah here is, is amazing. As the father and as the husband, he has the right to override the vow that Hannah has made. He, he, he could say, you know what? You're not giving my kid away. Forget that. You know, this is my, he doesn't, but he has so much respect for his wife. He has so much respect and conviction that this is what God has done, that he affirms his wife and her commitment and her vow. Pretty cool thing for a marriage, I think. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. When she had weaned him, she took him with her to Shiloh as well as a three-year-old bull. Some of yours may say, along with three bulls, the Hebrew's kind of hard to figure out exactly there. And then she took two and one-half gallons of flour and a jar of wine. These all exceed 
the requirements for the offering that she needed to provide. It was all you needed to bring was like a, a half a jar of wine. All you needed was just, you know, um, just a little bit of flour and those kinds of things. But she brought lots. And though the boy was still young, she took him to the Lord's house at Shiloh. Then they slaughtered the bull and the boy and brought the boy to Eli. Please, my Lord, she said, as sure as you live, my Lord, I, I'm the woman who stood over beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this boy, and since the Lord gave me what I asked for, I now give the boy to the Lord. For as long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. Then he bowed and he worshipped the Lord there. And then we have Hannah's prayer, probably the longest prayer recorded in the Old Testament by any woman. Hannah prayed, my, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My, my horn, or her, her pride, her consonants, her, her identity, if you will, is lifted up by the Lord. My mouth boasts over my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There's no one holy like the Lord. There, there's no one besides you, and there is no rock like our God. We sing that song, don't we? There is no rock. There is no, I won't sing it for you. It might scare, I want you to be here when I get done with my sermon. <laughs> Do not boast so proudly or let arrogant words come out of your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by Him. The bows of the warriors are broken. The powerful, if you will, are brought down. And the feeble are clothed with strength. Those who are full, their circumstances change and they have to hire themselves out just for food. But those who are starving, hunger no more. The barren woman gives birth to seven, but the woman with many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and he gives life. He sends some to Sheol and he raises others up. The Lord brings poverty and he gives wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He, he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the garbage pile. He seats them with noble men. And gives them a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He has set the world on them. That's why our prayers make a difference. Because it's God who sets the world on its foundations. He guards the steps of His faithful ones. But the wicked are silenced in darkness. For a man does not prevail by his own strength. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered he will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to His King. He will lift up the horn, or the, the person, if you will, of His anointed. So Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy served the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Must have been quite an experience for Samuel, huh? You're three, four years old, and you're standing, and you just, you just watch mom and dad walk away. And you're looking at this old guy who can barely stand up saying, you're in charge now, huh? Anyways, interesting experience, I'm sure. Some great stuff in here, isn't there? And, and I, you know, I, I want to really encourage you as we move forward just to read through the book of 1 Samuel. Stay a few chapters ahead, read the whole thing, and kind of come back and do pieces with us. I, I think you'll, you'll get a lot out of it. And, and again, we get to see how God works in history, how God's ways, which are above our ways, His thoughts are above our thoughts, how those things are implemented in real life, in real time, in the nation of Israel as it goes forward. Now, here's, here's the first thought that I want to provide to you. 
And listen, some of you have worked with me on various builds and that kind of stuff, and you know that I'm really no master craftsman. You know, I, I, am, I am challenged even to be a decent weekend warrior, okay? But I, even I know the phrase, and this is something my grandfather used to repeat to me over and over again when I was working with him, was measure twice, cut once. Anybody ever heard that before? You know, and this text would almost tell us, I think it does tell us, you know, look twice. Look twice. Because appearances can be deceiving. You know, we can even deceive ourselves as to where we're at. Think about this experience that's going on between Eli and Hannah. You know, Eli's he's sitting on his on his seat of authority, right outside the opening of the, the holiest place in the nation of Israel, the holiest place on the planet. He's sitting there. He's the doorkeeper. He's the one in charge. He's the one with the spiritual authority, right? He's the one who's got it all together spiritually, if quote-unquote. And over here is this woman, Hannah, who's probably down on her knees, and she's and, and he's looking at her, and, and by all appearances, she's just drunk. She's, she's so overwhelmed with emotion. She really can't control herself. She's just, she's, she's mouthing the words, but nothing's coming out. And he looks at her and says, you know, get rid of your wine. Stop drinking so much. How long are you going to be an evil woman? But when you look at it just a little deeper, the situation is actually flipped. Here's Eli. He's, he is supposed to be in charge of the spiritual righteousness of the nation, but even right underneath him, his sons are living unrighteously, and they're literally robbing the people of, a, of, a, of, a, of their worship experience before God. We're going to see that later in chapter 2. So here's this guy who's supposed to be the spiritual authority, and he's really the spiritual bumbler, right? Right? And then you have Hannah, who looks drunk, but hers is the heart that is actually reaching out to God in the midst of her anguish. And looks can be deceiving. Now, folks, there's some personal, personal applications to that for ourselves, right? There, there are some of us here this morning who are sitting in these pews, and we look like we're playing the part. You know, we're, we, we look like good, solid, upstanding, fine Christians who are really seeking the Lord. But in many cases, our hearts are far from God. And appearances can be deceiving. And we need to be careful about that. We, we, can, we can be sitting on the seat next to the doorpost of God, if you will. We, you know, we can be in a position where we really look like we've got it all together spiritually, but in many ways, the wheels can be coming off underneath. And so we need to make sure we look twice. You know, we're going to see through this text as we move through the book of 1 Samuel that God doesn't look at the outside. God looks on the inside. He looks at the heart. That's why he's going to pick David down the road. Because God doesn't see us the way we see each other. God sees our hearts. We, we need to look twice, not just on the surface, but what's going on underneath. And sometimes we get misled by what we see. Sometimes the godly really aren't that 
godly. And our challenge sometimes is we get our eyes on them instead of rather on God, and when they fail, our faith fails. And that happens. But it's also a scenario in which we look at certain people and we say, well, they wouldn't be interested in the gospel. You know, we draw our own conclusions about where they are with God. Well, they're, they're so successful and together and about themselves that they would never respond, or they're so far out and evil and committed out to stuff that they wouldn't respond. We, we just kind of separate ourselves. We, we, just, we look at the surface, and we already make up our minds that their hearts wouldn't be responsive to the gospel. And there's times when we need to look twice. A year ago, this September, a number of uh, most of the staff, I think all the staff, we had the privilege to go and, and be at a pastor's encouragement retreat. And uh, the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orlando was speaking to us. It was a group of pastors and their wives there, I don't know, about 200, 250 of us all together or something. And I remember him telling the story about how this, this woman came in and said, you know, she was just burdened for the prostitutes who were working the streets of Orlando. And, and I remember thinking to myself, Boy, if, if I was driving by those, I wouldn't be thinking, well, there's a mission field. I mean, I think those are the people who've already made up their minds. I got no use for God. I'm just going to do life my way. But he, he told about how the church just kind of rallied around this ministry and et cetera. And, and he said, talking about the first day that they had this luncheon, and literally he said, we had lots of people there. And, and as, as literally the buses pulled up with the prostitutes and brought them into their church building for this meal and for this this thing that they had put together for them that was going to be the launch of what they were doing. They literally, people clapped for them as they came in. You know, sometimes we need to look twice. Many times the needy around us, we never even see them. And the spiritual needy, even more so. We need to be careful. Secondly, don't jump to conclusions. That's, okay, you ever heard that phrase before? Don't jump to conclusions. Hardship can often be the gateway to God's redemptive activity in our lives. Here, here, I mean, the text doesn't make light of the fact. It, it doesn't avoid the fact that God was the cause of Hannah's barrenness. Her life is painful because God was not allowing her to fulfill the command that he had given to the nation to be fruitful and multiply. Okay? So she could jump to the conclusion, I've done something wrong, and God is judging me. Or she could jump to the conclusion that God just doesn't like me, or God's really not who he is. That's not what Hannah does. Hannah looks full in the face of the one who is causing her her anguish, and she cries out to him, and God hears her prayers. And it is in the midst of her anguish that God remembers her in verse 19 of chapter 1. And that that word remembered is, is the theologians call it, it's a soteriological word. It's, it's a word connection with his redemption. He, he remembers Hannah, and with that, he grants her her request. Again, the lesson that we must learn that often hardship is the gateway to God's activity in our lives. It is the gateway to God's redemptive lessons. Hardship is the place where God 
teaches us things that we can't learn anywhere else. And rather than fighting or maybe mad with it, we just need to embrace it. And as Tamson saying earlier, even though we're in the prison with the chains on, we need to be singing words of praise to our Father. The Scripture's just full of it. I mean, you can go back and look at Genesis of the life of Joseph. You know, you could... You could even look at Mary, the mother of Jesus, and just the hardship that she went through because she was an unmarried woman who was pregnant. Joe, Paul, the old list just kind of goes on and on. I remember an acquaintance of mine. I don't think the word, word um, uh, friend is. I think it's a little too strong. I've been in a few meetings with him and, and, and had a chance to interact with him some. And, and, and he, he was telling me that one of the most difficult moments in his journey was when his son was in college. And his son got caught with a, with a substantial amount, I, I don't know how much, but a substantial amount of marijuana on the college campus. And the local police really made a big issue out of it. First of all, he was a white kid. And the campus had really kind of gotten to a place where everybody took it very nonchalantly. So the police really wanted to set an example. And, and he had enough that he could be charged with being in a position to distribute it. It's not like he had a trunk full, but he had several bags full, enough to where he could have been. So they decided to throw the book at this kid. Now, here's a kid who had never been in trouble before, was at college, got out from underneath his pastoral dad's kind of leadership roles, et cetera, got to college, was trying a few things, and, and he lands up going to prison for a year. I mean, they, they, they did not relent, and they sent this kid to prison. And, and the father talked about it, he, it was just one of the most agonizing experiences for him. He was just heartbroken and torn and angry and everything else. And, and he just was asking God, what, what is it that you want me to learn? What do you want me to do? How do I respond to this? And you know what happened? Was that they figured out how to start planting churches and prisons as a result of his son being in prison. And they started planting churches inside the prisons all across the state. So much so that in other prisons, they were asking the state system to send guys who were leading these churches in other prisons to their prisons so they could start because it was having such an impact on transforming those and, and, that were in prison. And then when they got out, they would never come back. In the midst of his anguish, he reached out to God and said, what is it that you want me to learn? And that anguish became the gateway for redemption. Now, some of you are going through some hard times right now. And the thing in your mind that says, God, I just want this to be over. And the thought we need to be learning, saying is, God, what is it that I need to learn? What are you trying to show me? A couple of other things that come from this text. I'm having too much fun and our time's getting away from us. We need to expect the unexpected. My sub, sub point there is, God delights in using the powerless powerfully. I try to say that really fast. But God delights to use the powerless powerfully. This woman, Hannah, is a nobody in the people of Israel. She's just a farm girl who's been raised up to become a farm wife who's living out in the backwater area of the nation and if, if you were driving down the road, you know, you'd look out and you'd say, there's just another fire. You wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't think twice about who she is. She, the country is just full of people like her, barely getting by time to time. 
No authority, no position, no reputation, no anything. She is just ho-hum person. And God's response to her prayer, she is going to become the source that changes society because it's her son that God's going to use in bringing, to, to anoint the first two kings of Israel. God just loves to use the powerless powerfully. And I'd venture to guess that the vast majority of us in here, when it comes to spiritual things that have an impact on our environment around us, having a spiritual impact on it, we look at ourselves and say, we're powerless. And God's saying, perfect. <laughs> perfect. Because I love to use the powerless in a powerful way. And that's exactly what God does. And, and you can see the scriptures here. You know, in verse 4 it says, the, war, the bows of the warriors... They get broken, but the feeble, they're the ones who get clothed. The, the ones who are full, the ones who are successfully, they land up hiring themselves off, but the starving, no more. God just gives them a full plate, and the list just kind of goes on and on. God humbles and he exalts. God loves to change the world through the powerless because it displays his powerfulness. Got one last thought. This one may not be as received as well. Because I think it challenges many of us on a lot of different levels. Living with God, walking with God, following God, you can, you can use any term you want to use, it always involves giving. What, what did Hannah do? She gave up her son to the Lord. This is the child that she just anguished over having for, for years and years and years in her life. But when the time came, in order for her to be faithful in her journey with God, she had to give. And, and faith does not work if we don't give to God. We... We seem to be in a position where we're, we're very focused on what we can get from God, right? I mean, that's, that's really is the, what we, the, really in many ways, that's the tone of faith in America, is it not? You know, it's, it's how God can bless you. It's how God can make you feel better. It's how God can rise you up and all these kinds of things. And, and, and it's all about what I can get from God. But in the heart and the soul of it, walking faithfully with God is always going to mean that you have to give something. Going to give you time. Going to give you service. Going to give you heart, your priorities, your values, your mind, your relationships. You're going to give you money. You've got to give. And, and when you don't do that, faith just doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Because God's not interested in giving you the life that you want. God's interested in giving you the life that he wants for you. And that means you have to give some things. And so we look at Hannah and we say, you know, wow, what a marvel. But sometimes we just gloss over the fact that her four-year-old is gone. Maybe she sees him a few days a year, et cetera, but he's got, she gives. And because of that, God works. Be interesting to spend some time and really kind of asking ourselves the question: What 
what is it that we really need to be given to God? So I thought about how to conclude the message today. Which of these lessons do you really need to learn? You need to look twice? To say, you know what, I know I come to church regularly, read my Bible, but you know what, my, my heart just really, if you look close, my, my heart's just really not given to God. Some of us have already maybe jumped to conclusions. Maybe it's, you know, we, we, we see the things that are happening in our lives and the fact that God just can't do what he said he can do or he just doesn't care about me or whatever and we just kind of tune some things in. What, what is it that we need to let God rescript in our minds and our hearts? Have we lowered our expectations about how God can use or display his power through us? And have we lost sight of the fact that God delights in using the powerless powerfully? And what is it that God's been asking you to give that you've just been refusing to do so? Let's pray together. God, we're going to learn a lot of great things from 1 Samuel. We're grateful that you worked in human history redemptively. That all of this story leads up to the cross. And then from there it leads to the second coming. God, there are lessons we need to learn. Let us be teachable before you. In Jesus' name, amen.